Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that for the fellowship we had this afternoon and the great time with uh, the dinner. And we ask you to bless this time as we open the word and the study. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 122, as we continue in the song, Songs of Degrees. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built a, as a city that is compact together. There the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment and thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love you. Peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For your brethren and companions' sake, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Very short psalm. Hopefully we'll get to the end of it. It's a happy song. It's a, happy song. It's a, a lot of these ones in the songs of decree are, are somewhat happy compared to some of the ones we had at the beginning of the, of the psalms. And it starts with, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. And this is a really interesting one because it says, you know, to exalt. I, w I was exalt when they, exalted when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And this whole idea of being excited about being in God's presence is so important. Amy was commenting it on the one little thing I heard her say during Sunday school about how by being in church, it keeps your mind off of things that it shouldn't be on. And, you know, and I started thinking about this. How often has this kind of idea been brought up? And we're going to do just a little run through the Bible as I kind of looked at some of these things. The first one we're going to go to is First Chronicles. And I marked them so that I could get there fast. 293 which says, moreover, because I have set my affection to you, the house of my God, I have my own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above that I have prepared for his holy house. And this is talking about David. He wanted so much to have the temple built that he gave. And then it gives in how much money he gave, which was a huge amount of, huge amount of money that he gave. He gave you know, 3,000 talents of gold, and a talent is about uh, a 26,000 uh, pounds, uh, 26 pounds of silver of, of gold, which is a lot of gold. And they gave 3,000 of those. Who's in Jerusalem at this time? David is in Jerusalem at the time of that statement, yeah. Uh, and is at the end, toward the end of his life where he was wanting to build a temple. We saw the, the lady on the roof who was in Jerusalem Yes. And he saw Bathsheba. He was in the palace in Jerusalem. In Psalm 23, verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And, you know, one of the things that is, is so wonderful to me is just the idea of being in amongst God's people. I have always loved going to church. For as far back as I can remember, I've loved being with God's people. And being taught, being with his people. One of the greatest things when I'm on a vacation or a business trip, but I don't do it very often, uh, but just to be able to go into a church, the house of God, and being able to fellowship with the body of Christ. And you know, it's so wonderful when you're with God's people, you know, to be wherever you're at and you're with God's people, and it's just like being with family no matter where you're at. And this is what David is talking about in, in Psalm 26, 8, he says basically the same thing. He says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your honor dwells. And this is so often what I've said, you know, we go into a church and worship. And I love worshiping God. And, you know, I get to be the song leader here, which kind of hinders a little bit of the worship. But I love to worship. Because every time I start worshiping, I forget to read the words and I make up my own words as I go along, as you all are very much aware. Uh, and uh, because I'm so busy just focusing on God. And 
Plus, I've been taught as a, in, in singing music, you, you keep singing the words with, whether you remember them or not, and that happens even in the live shows of these guys. Sometimes they'll start singing words that aren't part of the album, aren't part of the song, and they're just into the song that they're doing, and they know that the song has to be continue. And just to worship, just to be worshiping God and being in his presence. In Psalm 27, 4, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that, I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And David's whole desire was to be with God. And if you remember the story of when the ark was brought back to the Jerusalem, it had been in Shiloh for a long time, and then they got it outside of Jerusalem, and the man touched the ark and was slain, and David was afraid of it. And why did it? Why was it? Because they, were, they had it on a cart instead of having the Levites carrying it, and it vibrated on the cart, and the, and the man reached up to touch it to keep it you know, keep it from falling, and he was struck dead, and David was fearful of it and left it outside Jerusalem. See, that just sounds wrong. God is trying to actually save it. Well, if they had followed the rules in the first place, he wouldn't have died. died. And it is hard. You know, sometimes it is hard, but, you know, he went to try to stabilize it, and he touched something he wasn't supposed to touch. And he was struck dead because of it. Being obedient. There were Levites. There were there were the people. Who, there were the people who were supposed to carry it. They just didn't do things the way that they were supposed to do, and that is what we do so often. We do things the way we want to do them, rather than the way God says to do them, and that happens frequently. You know, God, this is what I'm doing. Bless me. And God's saying, No, we're going to do it my way, and that's where the blessing's at. And we all tend to do that in our life. You know, God, I'm going to go do this. Not, God, should I do this? Or, or is this the right thing to do? But God, I am doing this. And God, bless me. And again, as I've said so many times, if you had the word me or I in your sentence when you're praying or, or giving your testimony, there's probably something wrong with it. Because it is supposed to be all about God. And they didn't bring God into this. And David says, you know, God, I just want to be in your presence. And in their case, pretty much you had to be in the temple to be in God's presence. You know, we can be in his presence everywhere. And he is in our, in our presence and we know that. But yet, there is a feeling when we're with other people that intensifies it. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. And I always feel God, even if I'm alone, but I always feel him more intensified when I'm with the body of Christ, when I'm with several other Christians and we're talking about God and we're lifting him up and we're expressing our praise to him and watching what he does. And I love that in that verse that we just read, 27.4, and behold the beauty of the Lord. I love to see the beauty of the Lord. I love to feel his presence. And, you know, I've said it many times, you know, sometimes when I'm in worship time with God, there's just a split, short periods of time where it just seems like I've entered more into heaven and just have slipped out. And if, and if heaven is just a tiny glimpse of what I've seen through worship, man, what a powerful place heaven is going to be. To be able to worship God for all of eternity in that way would be wonderful. And this is David's plea. God, I want to worship you. In Proverbs 64, verse 4. No, that's not the right one. I wrote 64.4, but that's not the right one. Hate it when I write the wrong verse down. That definitely has nothing to do with his, with God. Psalm 64, but it's not the right oh, verse. It's not the right verse, so we'll go to Psalm 85, 84 instead. <laughs> Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yea, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cries out for the living God. 
You know, and this is something I just, I love David's attitude about being in the presence of God. And, uh, you know, and I've looked at this and I've asked people, what can keep you away from something going on with God? And this is something that's very important for us to understand. For me, nothing will, well, I shouldn't say nothing. Very little will keep me from coming to church. You know, and people go, well, no, you're a pastor. Well, yeah, that's true. I am a pastor now. But even before I was a pastor, we, we, went, we went to church. The family knew that on Sunday morning we were going to church. Sunday night, I went to church no matter what. Sometimes I'd let the kids not go to church, but usually they went to church too. And on an extreme thing, they may not. Wednesday night, we went to church. Uh, you know, this is the way I was I was raised in one part, but I also wanted to be with God's people. I've always wanted to be. I kind of this one really, this verse uh, in, in uh, eighty four two. I long after God. What will keep you from seeking God? And it's a very important question for people. And you know, and I've always been saying, you know, coming to church is not going to be the absolute protection from all bad things happening to you but by being in church you're going to be better off than not being in church and I've shared this with many of the inmates I'm going to find a good church that you can be part of because if you're going to be there at least there's going to be people who are going to want to do the right things uh, now can you find people who don't want to do the right things in church absolutely if you want to find those kind of people you want to find them no matter where you're at but you're going to have a greater chance of finding people that are going to keep you on a godly path in amongst Christians than the opposite side. And if that's what you're looking for is to stay out of trouble, you're going to find that. 84.10 says, for a, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked or the... Or the, the uh, where the wicked dwell. And he says, the doorkeeper. I love that. You know, you know, give me the lowest job. You know, I just want to, I want to guard the door, God. <laughs> God, and I'd rather be there than in the, in the tents of the wicked where all the feasting and everything's going on. And, you know, is that our attitude with God? Do we truly desire to spend all of our time with him? as much of our time as possible. I, I hate sometimes being away from the body of Christ because there's so much out there. And it's hard sometimes. You know, luckily at, at the prison, I've got other Christians that I can talk with and you know, be able to fellowship with. But you know, it's so important because where we are together, we are the church. And to be away from the church is to be separated and to be isolated. And when you're isolated, you're an easier target. When an animal hunts a pack of, pack of uh, or a herd of creatures, it looks for the animal that is separated or weak and doesn't stay amongst the, the herd. And it makes them an easy target. And if you're in the herd, the herd will protect each other. And you know, I've heard that elephants will circle around the weakest of the elephants and they'll, you know, basically make a picket line around, around them and, and guard. Now, I don't know that that's true or not, but it sounds viable, and that's what I've heard and seen some pictures of where the young and everything are in the inner circle around them and they make a circle around them. I see you showing up there, the baby follows the parent for a few years. Mm hmm. Yeah. And there's a number of animals that actually have that long period where the parent is very protective of the animal. And, you know, as we grow, we can do venture out more. But, you know, we need one another. You know, and I've heard people say, well, I don't need the church. I can get along just fine. I've got my Bible. I can learn everything I need. I can, I can listen to the evangelist on the radio and the TV, and I'll be okay. And in one sense, they are true. They're going to learn lots of things that way. But, you know, there's so much more we get from the body than just learning. We get to learn to support one another. We get to learn to encourage. 
we can sometimes learn love and patience from the other people in the body. But, but even in that, that's a learning lesson for us to learn as well. Because part of what we're learning, iron sharpens iron, and sometimes we need to learn how to be forgiving, learn how to be loving of those that are hard to love. And sometimes the body gives us that opportunity. And again, if that's the case and it's really bad, then ask God if you're supposed to go to a different church. Because there should be a body of Christ ministering to one another. And if all it is is a whole bunch of cliques, it's not really being the body of Christ. And that may be a time to find another church. And so again, but the whole idea is we learn, we get supported by the body of Christ. And there is a place where it is very important for. Uh, and I've heard other pastors say, you know, you know, that I listen to, he goes, well, they've actually told people that, you know, come to the church once every two or three months when they come there and, and say, well, I need, I need advice. And then we'll go to the pastor you've been learning from. Well, I can't because I've been learning from the TV. Well, go to that. You know, but that's the point. You don't have a church to lean on. And then when you need something, you want to go, you know, church, give me, <laughs> give me my support. And it's like, well, you haven't needed us. Why, you know, you know, you haven't been in support of us. Why should we help you? And there's a logic to that. You know, there's a lot of people who come to churches and say with their hands out all the time, you know, give me. And when I was in College Park and the Benevolence Committee, there were people that were there, you know, didn't come to church, didn't, didn't support the church, didn't care about God, but their hands were always out. Give me. And when you challenged, why should we? They said, well, you're a church. You know, like a church is supposed to be a great big handout basket, you know, just pass out all the, you know, and help everybody that comes with, to them with a, with a need. And that doesn't mean that we don't help, but it means that why should they help if you're not looking to be for God? And this is what the church's primary goal is, is to bring God into their life. Now, to do that, we help minister to needs and all the other things that are out there. But our job is not to minister to the needs. Our job is to bring God into their life. And this is this whole idea that he says, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I love, this, love that whole attitude of going into his house. And then he goes in verse 2, Our feet shall stand within your gates, O Jerusalem, or we will abide, will abide in Jerusalem. And in here, I believe a lot of what he's going on this is not just the physical Jerusalem that he's talking about. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. He's keeping the text here of abiding in God's house. And we're going to be Jerusalem, where Christ rules, and then the heavenly Jerusalem comes down on the new heaven and earth, and he will rule for the rest of the new, <laughs> new age from that heavenly Jerusalem. So this isn't just Jerusalem physical, but all of Jerusalem. And he says, we will abide there. And can you imagine what it will be like to be in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem? You know, and the description of it in the book of Revelation is so interesting that it's hard to even understand. You know, gold that has the transparency on it, pearls that's so big that you have these huge gates in them, uh, all the colors he describes. And I think more than anything else, he had no other ways to describe them. Whatever he saw looked like a pearl with the color and, and shape of a pearl. So he goes, it must be a pearl, but couldn't even imagine a pearl of that size. And think about the poor oyster that would have to be to create an oyster, you know, how big the oyster would have to be. He'd be feeding on that oyster forever. Uh, <laughs> if he was big enough to produce a gate-sized pearl. Uh, but he says, our feet will dwell, will stand or dwell inside your gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compacted together. And this built literally means to establish. It's established. It is firm. It is made stable and able to continue. And compact 
means joined together. Jerusalem has been joined together. And this is, again, why I think it's more the heavenly Jerusalem that he's talking about, because the, in the heavenly Jerusalem, we are fit together in union. And this is a powerful picture, the peace that is brought together as, he, as everything is joined together in a perfect unity. And, you know, we don't have it in the church yet, but, you know, some churches are better than others about being unified. And our church is coming along really well here because I remember six years ago when, when I would close the church and nobody would be around here. They, people got out of here as fast as they possibly could, faster than I could get to the back door to say goodbye to them. Now we can't get rid of people. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny. Or it's in, in service at, at, at noon or, or a little after and people are still around at 12.30, 1 o'clock. And I love it. And not that I'm in a hurry to get rid of people, but I love the fact that people are hanging out and being one. They come in early for service and talking to everybody, each other and becoming a body of Christ. And it's a wonderful thing when that happens. And yes, I've, I've been to the churches every once in a while that just don't seem to stand each other and, and have cliques and aren't really a body of Christ. And they need to change. They need to be brought together. But God, it's God's work. God has to be brought into the situation so that people will give up their rights and work one for another. That aspect, a lot of times, it can be following a, following a pastor, following a teacher. Uh, Paul dealt with that. Some, some of you say that you're of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos, and some of you are really spiritual. You say you're of Jesus. And this is an issue, and it's happened as far back as we can remember, and probably, quite possibly, if you want to take it back even further to the prophets. You know, we're following this prophet, I'm following that prophet. It's nothing new. People want something they can see to follow. And it becomes a natural human tendency and to not be led by the Spirit and to try to follow an individual that can happen in some big ways and it can cause some real problems. Uh, there's some churches that once a pastor leaves, all, half the church will leave because they're following the pastor and not, uh, not God. And the most important part is at least wait till the next pastor gets there and find out whether the pastor is going to lead the church correctly or not and then decide whether you're going to move on. And it is a problem with humans that we want stability. They, most, most people do not want change. And that happens in the business world. When something is changing, people get upset and irritated and, and have problems with it. And we need to learn to be flexible to one degree. But you know, the greatest thing about it is if, if you're teaching God's word, it really doesn't who the, who the person teaching is because they're teaching God's word and who the real teacher is is the Holy Spirit. Now there's a different style, obviously, different. everybody's going to teach a little different style, which is what I find when I listen to all these different speakers on the, on the radio. Every once in a while they all get on the same topic at the same time and I know it's not planned because they're just, they're doing what it is, but there'll be four or five different ways of something being presented and it's kind of interesting. We should be able to learn from anybody who's teaching God's word. And this is one thing I have truly believed most of my life. If somebody is teaching God's word, I'm going to learn something. And even if they're not the greatest teacher in the world, they're, if they're really honestly teaching God's word and the spirit is working through them, I will learn something because it's the Holy Spirit teaching. And we need to keep this in mind is we're fit together. We're drawn together. We are the body of Christ. This is very important because not, no one pastor is going to be the greatest pastor and be the one that fits every single person. Otherwise, there would only be one church. You know, that's all you'd need, especially in this electronic age. You'd have one pastor somewhere in the middle of, middle of one place with all kinds of satellite churches preaching to everybody at the same time and not needing to have anybody else. But each one of us does have a personality and certain things that just we like better than others. While music or style of the teaching should not be an issue, we know that our flesh gets involved and it is. 
uh, Greg Laurie always talks about how his church is going to have cutting edge music because he's trying to attract the world to listen to his message. And I understand what he's saying. But we need to keep in mind that one church is not going to meet the needs of every single person because we each have some personality traits. By the same token, we can't be going, okay, God, I'm not going to go there just because of... But again, the whole idea is, are we focused on God or are we focused on what's going on around us? And it's critical for this that we're drawn together in unity. And it says, there the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. And this is the idea of the tribes. The people went to Jerusalem three times a year. Every male was to go to, the tri- go to Jerusalem or to the temple and worship. Can you imagine that? You know, three times a year you had to go to you had to go to the temple, no matter where you lived in Israel, and that meant, for some t- people, it meant a couple weeks away from home. And if you lived way up in the north part of Dan or way down at the bottom in the south, uh, it would take a week or so to get there, worship God for that festival, that holiday, which usually was three to three to four days, and then head back home. Well, you may have. You, you, there, there wasn't a lot of places to stay. There weren't a lot of hotels. There weren't a lot of inns. Uh, so you would hope that you would find some place to stay. You pitched your tent all around Jerusalem. Uh, but we saw an example of that in Jesus' birth. When all of when Rome required everybody to go back to your home, your home uh, village or town to be taxed. And all of a sudden, Bethlehem, which was a very small town back then, it wasn't a really big place, all of a sudden they were infiltrated with all these people coming back home to pay their tax. And that's when Mary and Joseph were, so, were kept being told, sorry, there's no room in the inn. There's no place for you to stay here. And in her case, it wasn't one where you just sat out in the wilderness on the, on the ground because she was so far pregnant that it would have been a big... Uh, hardship to her and ended up you know being in the cave or the stable where the animals were kept but we see this whole picture and yes Jerusalem was said that it swelled to a million people during these festivals you know and it's hard to imagine especially well, it wouldn't be so bad now but because there's more up high rises and big hotels and all of that but in their day people literally were sleeping out on the streets. They would, they would create their little lean-tos and, and little things, and they were just sleeping everywhere. And one commentary quoted from an ancient uh, historian that said, on one particular Passover, the, the rivers around Jerusalem flowed red with the blood of all the sacrifices for Passover because they'd killed so many lambs for Passover because so many people were there. And, you know, it's something we don't even fathom and yet all of Jerusalem was impacted three times a year when they followed God now Israel as we know as we studied it in in various times rarely obeyed God (laughs) you know we always had this idea of Jerusalem you know the Israelites following God in the most part well they got judged because they didn't follow God more often than they did and so most of the time, people did not come to Jerusalem the way they were supposed to three times a year. They did not offer the sacrifices they were supposed to. Uh, after several places where they had good kings following bad kings, they spent months cleaning out the temple of all the garbage <laughs> that had been used to be stored in the temple because they weren't worshiping God in the temple. And during those times, they would find the word of God stuffed away into some in some some back room someplace and end up reading and realizing how far off they were in following God. And so we get this picture of David delighting in God. And who did he just follow? He followed Saul, who didn't delight in God, who didn't follow after God with all of his heart. Now, Samuel during that period of time was reigning for most of Saul's life. So there was some order in, in, the, in the land, but it wasn't fully established and David 
is following, will follow God. Solomon half-heartedly followed God. Started out good, got blessed by God, fell away from God, and then came back to God at the end of his reign. His son, Rehoboam, did not follow after God very good. And we see over and over and over again how they start worshiping idols and start seeking after gods that aren't God. And they lose this idea of David, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Was that on Solomon or did it on Rehoboam? Which one? Well, Solomon probably set a bad example, but uh, he was he was arrogant and and uh, didn't follow after either, so it was his fault. We are always responsible for our mistakes, even if we had a bad childhood and bad examples from our parents. We are still responsible for what we do with what we have, because even kids who've had good examples from their parents still fall away quite often. And those who've had bad examples and terrible parents sometimes are the greatest leaders and followers of God. So, you know, we're, we're all responsible. And this is what I tell parents all the time who say, well, I didn't do a really good job raising my kids. Well, it's still their responsibility. It's still their responsibility in how they respond to God. We may have made it more difficult for them, but it's still their responsibility. We may have given them great examples and they, and they still fall away. And we do the best we can as parents. And our job from that point on is just to try to encourage them to stay on the track or to get on the track, whichever case it might be. And Israel went through this over and over. Bad kings followed good kings. Good kings followed bad kings. Or, you know, if you really want a good, good way to feel good about your job as a parent, start reading First, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and watch these good kings that are following bad kings and bad kings that follow good and it should and it'll let you know that no matter what you do as a parent it doesn't really matter in one sense because a bad king ends up with a righteous kid it's all dependent on how they're going to respond to God and we see this over and over how the response is personalized and yes we can make it easier we can raise our children in godly conditions and give them the greatest start that they can. And I've shared with you, it's so fun to watch my kids come back and tell me, I'm just amazed at how much I knew because you know, I, I know more than, more than the people in the Bible study and I'm having the answers and I never realized I knew that much. And I could have said the same thing as I was growing up when my dad would teach things at home. And hopefully they'll learn themselves and they'll teach it to their kids and their kids will come to, they'll be able to say, man, I didn't know I knew so much. And, but by the same token, if you're raised by the worst possible parents, you can still be a godly person. And I've seen that on the other side of things where people just say, I want God. I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know how. And that's how my life started from the earliest age. I was going to church. When nobody in my family went to church, I went to church get up on my own and go to whatever church. Now, what churches I went to when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, I don't know, okay? Did I go to always the best church in the, in, that was out there? Probably not. Do you normally just go to the neighbors? Well, I went to the nearest church I could find or, or, a, neighbor, or a neighbor would take me or whatever. Uh, you know, we live in America. There's a church on every corner of every place you go just about. Uh, and I got involved with a bus ministry and ended up going to church with the bus ministry and gospel message was preached and, then, and ended up responding to the gospel message. I know in Scotland, one of the neighbors asked if they could take me to church and, and you know, I asked my dad if, he could, if I could go to church with them. And I remember that church, again, I'd have no clue, you know, what denomination it was or anything. I just remember going to church and I've been doing it as far back as I can remember, I've gone to church even though nobody in my family went to church. Then my dad got saved two years later and everybody went to church after that. <laughs> wasn't, a, wasn't a question, we all went to church. And it was great for me because I wanted to go. <laughs> it wasn't so great for my brother or sister because at first they didn't want to go. But I wanted to be there. And why? I don't know. I said, to this day I have no idea why. It was just a great desire in my heart to do so. And it says, they're going to go up and they're going to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
And that is so wonderful to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Verse 5 says, For there are set thrones of judgment and thrones in the house of David in Jerusalem. And there are set thrones of judgment. This refers to the idea of Dan, uh, Daniel. Deuteronomy 17.8 where it talks about going before God to have judgment. And it, was, and it says in Deuteronomy 17.8 that if the case is too hard for your local judge, you were to go where God sets his seat for judgment. And the church under the Levitical system was the basically Supreme Court. If you couldn't find your answers at the local court, you would appeal your case back to the temple. And the priest and the high priest were the ones that would be the ultimate authority of where God, what God was saying. And, you know, kind of different from the way our world is, but our, our country was set up on this type of principle that there was a lawgiver, a, a lawgiver, a executive power, and, and a court. In their case, we talked about God and the priests and all of that, but in here it's saying Jerusalem was set up to be the court, a throne of judgment. And then it goes, and by the way, the thrones of the house of David are here. And David was told in Second uh, Samuel that he was going to have an heir sit on the throne in perpetuity. And this is something that has always been true at least for the southern kingdom, it has had a king of David, a son of David as king on the, on the southern kingdom until they went into captivity. And at, since that time, from captivity to Jesus, there was no king in, in, in uh, Israel. And then Jesus comes as the king who's going to reign forever. And he fulfills this idea that he's going to have a throne forever. And it's an amazing thing that God has kept all of this. And this is something that is so important. God's promise that David would have a child on the throne for the entire time. And, you know, if you know anything about monarchies, it's, it's not uh, too hard to picture. Most monarchies do not have a long succession over centuries of the same family running running it somewhere there's usually a changeover where there's not a male heir or or whatever there's a mixing of blood a a revolt or whatever it is and if you follow the northern kingdom you see it all over the place you know king king so and so ruled for so for so many generations with his family and then he was gone and another person took over and i believe there were four different if i recall correctly four different families that reigned over the northern kingdom before it fell completely and that's not a, you know an uncommon thing in 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 kingdoms and and dynasties for kings egypt had several dynasties where they switched over to a new family uh, we see it over and over england <laughs> england has had so many switches of their dynasties over the years that you know uh scotland was even worse <laughs> You know, Scotland had so many different royal families, you, it, it's not even funny, and it's not uncommon. Yeah, like clans. Well, clans would come along, and then they would be the rebellion, and a new, new clan would take over the, the rule of it, and it's, it happens all through history, no matter, you know, I'm not, not so familiar with the French, French monarchy, but I think they had several, several changes, and then again, most of the, the Scandinavian countries, I'm sure, had the same type of mentality because it all came down to if you weren't powerful enough to keep your, keep your reign, somebody would take it from you. Mm -hmm. Or you weren't successful in having a male heir, somebody would take it from you. So the idea that David would have somebody sit on the throne forever was quite a big deal. And to last 400 years with a son of David on the throne was amazing. And then, of course, we culminate his reign with Jesus, who will be on the throne for all, all the rest of eternity. And we see how big a deal this is, that David's throne was in Jerusalem. And, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing that God says Jerusalem is his city. You know, 
the, word, the city of Jerusalem is named 683 times in the Bible, you know, which kind of makes some sense because it's the capital and everything, but you know, it's, it's one of the most used words in the Bible, 683 times mentioned. Nothing, no other city comes anywhere close to that. And yet God says, this is where I'm going to sit my authority for all of eternity. The new heavenly Jerusalem comes down on the new heaven and earth. You know, just a small city. You know, 1,500 uh, uh, square <laughs> miles each direction. Everybody wants to have control of it. Everybody wants to have control of it. And that's not a surprise because Satan is trying to keep things from happening in Jerusalem. So he's going to make it as, as contested as, as, as he possibly can. As long as he can cross the if he can, well, ultimately the idea is to take it away from Israel. Because if he can take it away from Israel, then many things can't happen there, like the temple being rebuilt and, and the city being used as the center of everything. So... You know, Satan's whole attack for all of the centuries and millennia has been to try to destroy Israel before Jesus was born to try to keep him from being born because he had to be of the seed of David. So he tries desperately to destroy Israel through many, many means, okay, through the captivity of Egypt, through the, through the captivity during uh, Cyrus's reign, through... Uh, uh, Haman's attack on them to try to kill them through, through Rome's you know brutal times and Greece's brutal times and you know they were the center of massive battles. I mean, during during the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, Babylon was fighting Egypt all the time. So it, and who's in the in the middle of all of that? It was Israel. So every time the Babylon army went to fight Egypt, they, went, they, they marched through Israel. Every time Egypt came up, pushed on them, they went, marched through Israel. Very much like the American Civil War. The, the states of Maryland and Virginia were the ones that saw most of the action because they were the, the border states. <laughs> no matter where you went, you went through those two states and you know, they were terribly brutalized you know, because they happen to be border, and, and Israel just happened to be an innocent bystander in the middle of two great armies marching back and forth on each other. Hitler comes along afterwards to try to keep Israel from being fulfilled and coming back. You know, Satan has tried hard to destroy Israel. Everything is now geared to try to get rid of Israel. Why now? Because if Israel is destroyed, then revelation cannot come true because everything is centered on Israel in Jerusalem. God is protecting them and always has protected them and, and will protect them because we're facing the end times and he cannot let them be destroyed because all the prophecy says that it won't. And Satan is trying hard to defeat them because he does not want the prophecies fulfilled. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love you. And I love this is make your request for the peace, the shalom. And when you use the word shalom, it means so much more than peace. It is a complete and utter rest. It is not just no, no striving, no, no war going on. It is a literal, very deep word that we don't even, we can't even translate because of it, because it means so much more than peace. It's a greeting, it's a, but in their greeting, they are wishing you the, the completeness of peace. And it's spiritual peace, it's physical peace, it's you know, uh, national peace. It is a complete idea of we are at ease because we are in God's will following him. It's a very powerful word, and that's the one that's used here. For the shalom of Jerusalem, peace nationally, uh, individually, spiritually, you know, all the way down the road. And it's one of those words that is something that doesn't, translate well into into English it's a concept we can't really comprehend and it is they use it for a greeting and it really is I'm wishing you all of these things at the same time and it says pray for that kind of peace in Jerusalem and then the promise they shall prosper that love you the Abrahamic covenant those that bless you will be blessed those who curse you will be will be cursed 
And this is something very much that we have to keep in mind that Israel is God's people. And he treats them in a very special way. And we've seen it over the years. If people go against Israel, they end up falling apart. If they uh, are on Israel's side, they get blessed. Daniel is raised into a place of authority in Babylon and Syria are both blessed during the time that he is ruling in there. Egypt, under the time of Joseph, was greatly blessed because they, they were blessing Israel. We see it over and over. Those are biblical examples, but even over time, we've seen those God blessing people that have honored them. Then it goes in verse 7, peace within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. And again, say in Jerusalem, you'll have peace. And this peace is again, shalom. You know, individual, national, you know, spiritual are within your walls or your ramparts. And this word for prosper, prosperity is a different type of thought on here. It is the whole idea of being quiet, to being at ease. You know, usually when we read the word prosperity and, and it's, you know, used as prosperity here, we think of dollars and cents, you know, physical possessions. But prosperity and this peace that he's talking about is just being at ease. Or as Paul will later on say, I have learned to be content with much or with little. Why? Because technically he was in prosperity. He was at ease with God. God, whatever you want, I'm, I'm going to be content. I'm going to be satisfied because of what you've given me. You know, when do we get all bent out of shape is when we just start comparing ourselves to others or saying, God, I don't have enough. How do you learn to be like that? How do you learn to be like Make decisions. Decide that God has blessed you with that God has blessed you with what you what He wants you to have. You know, and a lot of it is that who am I looking to to for my peace? You know, am I looking at others? Because if I'm looking at others, I will never be content. Because I'll look and say, well, I don't have as much as that person does, or I have more than this person does, or I don't have as much as what, and even then, we're making assumptions that we know everything about that person that we're comparing ourselves to, and we usually don't. We don't realize that maybe they're you know, making payments. And, and they're not at peace themselves. And oftentimes, you'll find that people living in these great, big, huge homes have so much debt going out between their home and their nice car to put to show that there's nothing inside the house. You know, we see this oftentimes, you know, it's made in comedies, but it's based on reality. Beautiful house outside, everybody thinks you've got it and you're living on egg crates or, you know, wooden cartons, you know, as your tables and your chairs. And it's not uncommon for that to be the case. I was watching a show last night on Netflix about castles and it talked about, and I've heard this before, how the royal people would end up so far in debt maintaining their lifestyle that they were required to maintain you know, their servants and the food and all of this, and, and they would end up being what is an equivalent today, millions of dollars in debt because they were trying to live a lifestyle that was not real. And everybody would go, well, you look, how, look how great you've got it. You've got everything. And they're going, racking up debt, racking up debt, and ending up having to sell the place at some point you know, and even in the medieval days, these lords and, and people would end up selling their palaces because they'd gone into so much debt living the lifestyle, not being content, not being able to put out, you know, show where they're at. So a lot of it is just deciding, God, I'm going to be content with whatever you give me. And in our day and world, it's hard to stay that way sometimes. Well, I've got a, I've got a piece of plastic. I can get whatever I want. <laughs> I can't afford to go out to dinner, but I'm going out to dinner anyway, and I'll pay for it for the next 20 years. That's pretty expensive dinner to be paying for for 20 years. <laughs> but you know, that's our style. We live for the now and the moment, and again, it's nothing new. It's nothing new that's out there. It's been that way forever. And we, he says, your prosperity. Being content, being at ease with whatever, we, whatever God's given us. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will now say peace be within you. And this is whoever the writer of this psalm is saying, I'm going to pray for my people in the city. 
And it says, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Uh, again, this writer is talking about serving others. Serving others. Talked about it this morning. As teachers, as pastors, as Christians, our desire is to help others and be able to present our family, saying, God, I've done the best I can. I've presented you to them. I've taught them truth to you. And one of the greatest things that I can always said, one of the, that my dad had done for us, is every time there was a question, he took us back to the word of God and said, here's what God says about it. Tried to do that as much as possible with my kids. Try to do that when I counsel people. This is what God says. Now, if you don't want to do it, that's between you and God, but I'm going to tell you what God says about the topic. And from there, it's, God, will I surrender to you? And the sad thing is, so many people don't want to surrender to God. And it's really sad because this is when God says something, we should surrender to him. And yet, I, I've done it myself. God, I want to do it my way. Do it my way. Hurt my family. End up turning to God eventually anyway. And so our, our goal should be, God, you're going to win anyway, so let me just give up, give up and surrender to you. And I'm getting better at that as time goes on. The more, the more mature I'm getting, the more I've seen, more times I've fought with God to do it my way, I'm starting to get better at saying, okay, God. And my, my answer a lot of time, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? What, what, is it, what is it you want me to do this time? And say, okay, we're going to do it your way. Because it's a lot easier to do it his way. Because eventually he's going to get his way. Uh, that or he's going to take us home. And, but in the process of not doing it his way, we go through a lot of headaches, a lot of trials, a lot of trouble, not doing it his way. And then sometimes we suffer consequences that are long-lasting. And the consequences may be pretty severe sometimes, as in harm to our families and harm to, our, to, our, uh, to everything about what we're going through. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. And Lord, we ask for your peace. We ask you to help us learn just to surrender to you and let you have your way in our life. And let us do it quickly and follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.